listening to Meet the Thriller Author, the podcast for interview writers of mysteries, thrillers, and suspense books. I'm your host, Alan Peterson, and this is episode number 66. In this episode of the podcast, I would be interviewing Thomas Granius, who is a New York Times bestselling uh, author of the Atlantis Trilogy. His books uh, in that series consist of Raising Atlantis, The Atlantis Prophecy, and The Atlantis Revelation. And his iconic characters, archaeologist Conrad Yates and linguist Serena Sergeti, star in an augmented reality game, Ingress, which has been downloaded by more than 50 million players. Thomas uh, studied creative writing and lives in Southern California with his family. And we're going to be talking to him about uh, writing his uh, thrillers and uh, the uh, video game component of his uh, of his work, which is uh, fascinating, and a whole bunch more. So stay tuned for my interview with uh, Thomas Granius. This episode, I'm talking with uh, best-selling uh, author Thomas Granius who's uh, joining me here on Skype. How are you, Thomas? I'm doing great. How are you, Alan? Oh, I'm doing uh, really good. Thank you so much for being on the uh, podcast. Yep, my pleasure. And um, so for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, background? Uh, You know, my background was actually journalism uh, at Northwestern University, actually. was in the creative writing program, the same one that G.R. Martin uh, went through some years earlier and then later Veronica Roth, but I was also in the journalism school and my focus was national security. And those themes just really clicked with me and that's what I specialized in. And when I graduated, I was an on-air correspondent for NBC affiliates in Washington, D.C. And while I was there, I had some friends You know, in D.C., it's like the interns and the staffers who are in their early 20s pretty much run the town. But somehow I was able to get into the tunnels underneath the U.S. Capitol, some of which have, you know, been there from before the Republic. And it really sparked my imagination and later uh, inspired some of my books. And so that's kind of where the the conspiracy thriller aspect of things came to me along with, in my childhood, I'd visit my mother's homeland of Greece, and I'd go on archaeological digs on Crete and Santorini and some of the islands. And so the whole mythology of Atlantis was with me as well. And eventually, uh, I moved out to Hollywood, where I was writing screenplays. I was doing some stuff with Jim Cameron and Ridley Scott, and my agent had called about adopting a uh, excuse me, adapting a book about ruins. And I thought that was interesting. And I was in a doctor's office and picked up National Geographic. This is about when I got the call. And it was about some research in Antarctica. Long story short, I kind of put it together, ruins in Antarctica. I thought that'd be kind of cool to write a big adventure about ancient ruins two miles beneath the ice in Antarctica. So that's how I came up with Raising Atlantis. And the irony is, is that when I finally got the book from, it was Warner Brothers that wanted me to adapt it, um, it wasn't about ruins. It was about runes, R-U-N-E-S, those <laughs> medieval symbols. And I said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do Raising Atlantis. That was a good mis- misunderstanding. <laughs> it worked out well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And so that was your first, uh, that was your first novel, was the, the Raising Atlantis? Yes. Some first novel, some debut. 
Well, you know, what, what the interesting thing about that one was went out through one of the big bicoastal agencies, the head of the New York office, and didn't sell. And I then, uh, this was originally, so I then ended up creating a website called the Atlantis Mapping Project that became very successful, like 2 million visitors a month, unique ones, and some of the most forwarded emails in America, according to an outfit called Clickability at the time, which measured those things. So these, you know, bogus stories about the secret U.S. military dig in Antarctica uh, were being read as much as, you know, those how to lose 10 pounds in 10 day, uh, 10 days articles from people and stuff from cbsnews.com. And so when I self-published it with Amazon, and this was before Kindle, and they really got behind it, uh, you know, it debuted at number one, and then a full year later, it was number two, just behind the Da Vinci Code and ahead of Dan Brown's other three books. And that's when I found another agent and said, hey, I think this is doing pretty well. And... You know, within a month or so, there was an auction and different bidders, and then the book sold. And quite honestly, it wasn't that much different than the one that went out through one of the biggest agents in town and just didn't get any bites from publishers. But the traction, obviously, online changed all that. So that really taught me that sometimes you really do have to go past the gatekeepers uh, to to get something out there so it can find its audience. Yeah, so that's pretty amazing that you would, you, would, you say you did all that before, like even the whole Kindle uh, thing took off. Huh? That's pretty, pretty good insight for for that time. Uh, yeah, you know, at the time, I didn't think that much of it. I thought that the web stuff was kind of its own thing and actually had a whole subscription service and all kinds of things for the the stories there, and the biggest problem that I had was that people thought that this fictional site was real, and we kept putting in more disclaimers, and the more disclaimers we put in, the more people started accusing us of a disinformation campaign on behalf of the Pentagon to distract attention from the real dig going on. And oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was pretty crazy, and we even put out a... Uh, uh, back then, Monster.com, this is the pre-LinkedIn days, was uh, the big job site thing. And we put out a mock job uh, posting to join the uh, Atlantis mapping project in Antarctica. And it was posted by General Griffin Yates, the father of uh, my hero, astroarchaeologist Conrad Yates. And it said all these crazy things about enduring, you know, extreme temperatures, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the various different things going on. And I was shocked. We got hundreds of resumes. And these resumes came from, I, it, it actually, it, I got several, three heads of home entertainment divisions at the Hollywood studios who applied for a job. I mean, they got that it was fiction and they thought this is cool. And then we got others who, who you know, went uh, totally off the spectrum. It's like, General Yates, uh, I think 
I worked, uh, you worked with my father years ago at the Pentagon. And, you know, I've got small weapons uh, background and I can do this job. It was, it was a lot of fun, but it was crazy. We actually pulled the posting, even though Monster.com kept pushing us to, you know, ex- to, to push the posting even more. And we kept explaining this is not real. <laughs> <laughs> they were loving the traffic. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and in fact, the problem with raising Atlantis with, uh, Ridley Scott at the time was that, uh, he wanted to do the historical version, uh, and show the continent and everything blowing up and sinking. And, and I kept trying to explain that, you know, it's really, uh, a myth. <laughs> you know, it was in Plato's dialogues and an idealistic society. And so my book's about, these ruins, you know, uh, millennia later, uh, discovered under the ice, uh, because Antarctica, if you take Plato's description literally, Antarctica is the best bet for the location of Atlantis. And, uh, but that was, I found that very interesting. Well, no, no, we want to, we want to do the historical account. <laughs> and that's something, I mean, there really are people out there that believe that it's that there really was an Atlantis and it's out there somewhere, right? I mean, still. <laughs> yes, and I, I obviously I think that there were probably several candidates that inspired the story. Again, because of my own background and heritage, I'm 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 pretty convinced it was the Minoan civilization in the Mediterranean around the island of Crete and the and the volcanic uh, explosion there on Santorini uh, that inspired the story. Uh, for Plato hundreds of years later. Is it the first thriller? <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, I was interesting, I was reading about the, on your website about the, uh, one of your characters, the linguist of, uh, Serena, is that Sergetti? Yes, Serena Sergetti, yeah. Vatican linguist, yes. Yeah, okay, it says that she's, a, that she's a star in an augmented reality game with over 15 million players. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think, did you say 15 or 50? It's 50 at least. Um, yeah, 50 million. <laughs> yeah, so both Conrad and Serena, uh, are part of this game Ingress by the company that brought us all Pokemon Go. And several years ago, a good friend of mine, uh, who's the lead creative there for Niantic, a legendary video game, uh, designer, invited me to the original meeting. Uh, kind of like the formation of the, of the CIA, the original meeting at the, uh, at the pool at the, uh, Beverly Hilton outside of the Trader Vic's bar. And, and that's where the general idea was hatched out, uh, a couple of years before the game ever ca- came out. And so it was Google's first augmented reality game. And simply what that means is it was a geolocation aware game. That again, if you've seen Pokemon, you know that uh, it's where you use your mobile phones and depending on where you are, there are certain portals that you would try to hack. Uh, and the general idea is that there's this mysterious force out there, the, the, the shapers, uh, who are trying to influence humanity and that has split uh, humanity's reaction to this idea of shapers into two factions, the enlightened who want to embrace this sort of alien, uh, uh, and again, enlightened knowledge, and then the uh, resistance, which are resistant, who like, we don't know what this influence is, and we want, we don't want to surrender to it until we know more. So 
Conrad and Serena because of their adventures with raising Atlantis and some of the themes there, and later on their battles with a centuries-old organization known as the Alignment, which, like the Shapers, has been trying to influence history, were just kind of naturals with it. So we did a cross-licensing deal, and and, uh, I helped to define a couple of new characters for Google that are in the game um, that they had created uh, and published their uh, A Line of Fiction that would be also be incorporated into the game. And so Conrad and Serena were in there, along with some other characters from the Ingress game who were new. And the game, obviously, it, it took off. Uh, it was really a, a, a testing ground for this technology. And uh, Niantic has since uh, used the Pokemon Go brand uh, to get downloaded, I think, a billion and a half players, which is crazy. And the there's a Harry Potter one coming out uh, as well. And there's going to be another one I can't say anything about that'll also another well-known property that'll be a big deal. But also later this summer, uh, Ingress 2, the original one where Conrad and Serena uh, were in, is going to be coming out. And I think they're they're pretty confident that, I mean, you know, if they've if 50 million after, I mean, that was five years ago, I think, the game first came out. Uh, I think after Pokemon Go's billion or so and Harry Potter, I think they're pretty confident they're going to get it. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to speak for anyone. I'm pretty confident they'll get about 500, 500 million uh, players for it. So it created a whole new audience, a lot of it millennial for Conrad and Serena. And so uh, a lot of folks have uh, picked up on their adventures. And uh, we released three free uh, e-books, e-shorts, that all debuted at number one on Young Adult on Amazon uh, called The Virgin Mystery. So there's like a – they're all free. Uh, any, anyone, for example, can go to RaisingAtlantis.com, and, uh, you know, there are a couple of interlocking things you got to do to unlock them, but there's uh, The Virgin City. Uh, which is a young adult version that introduces Conrad and Serena. There's the Virgin Sky about the secret star alignments of Washington, D.C. that informed the best-selling sequel to Raising Atlantis called The Atlantis Prophecy, which did even better. Uh, And then there's the Virgin Sea, which are some uh, uh, notes and essays from... Serena Sergetti, including her translation of the Confession of Moby Dick. So she's a linguist, so she can not only read uh, or translate uh, alien languages, she can, I guess, talk to the animals. <laughs> and now, this, these books with all of the architecture, the, the, the linguists, uh, how much research do you have to put into, uh, goes into one of these <laughs> novels? You know, well, way too much. You'd be shocked at how, how much I I have to cut out. And uh, for example, the Atlantis prophecy, which I mean, every single Masonic conspiracy and everything else you can imagine was in there. And uh, uh, there are like six different novels in there in terms of uh, uh, the research and storylines and the zodiacs embedded into the architecture of DC and whatnot. So it. It's a lot of fun. It's probably too much fun doing the research uh, to get it down into a story and simplify it. What uh, was a real struggle? Uh, same thing happened with the um, Roman. Uh, uh, I have an ancient Roman 
thriller called The Chiron Confession, which is very much like a, a Robert Ludlum meets Gladiator sort of thing in, in first century Rome. And that was just a lot of fun. And the, the fact is, is all of it was for the most part true. I mean, it's based on historical facts and events and people. And uh, I, I was just stunned to know that the uh, emperor at the time, Emperor Domitian, that when he was born, his birth chart predicted the exact date and hour that he would die. As a result, he spent the rest of his life killing anybody he thought would try to fulfill that prophecy, which in the end came true, thanks to my hero in that book. <laughs> but uh, but uh, it was uh, – uh, and uh, the fun thing is when research and things into other periods of time or things kind of reflect things today – and they seem kind of prophetic, but I think that's because things kind of just repeat themselves. So um, there was no political agenda in writing the Chiron Confession. It was just a number of reviewers noted that the Emperor Domitian there, he had some issues with his hair, uh, like our current president, and he uh, he was really big into the reality of the uh, arena. Uh, and, uh, the games there that he staged, uh, again, like the, the current situation and that mostly the key thing was one of the big things there is a whole deep state issue and how the hero of the book, the playwright Athanasius, who comes from a scripted background, meaning plays versus the reality, uh, staged by his nemesis, the master of the games in the Colosseum. He uncovers this imperial plot to extend the rule of Rome for a thousand years. And you see how the state corrupts other institutions, including the church and whatnot. And that's a theme that's playing out today. And I just, it, to me, that just says that these are age old themes and I, I love exploring them in my novel. I think Americans, uh, in particular, uh, tend to be a little paranoid. And so, uh, I get a chance to uh, explore that, whether it's in the modern adventures like, like Raising Atlantis or historical thrillers uh, and uh, uh, organizations that really do seek to influence the rest of us. And yeah, Adrian, the blurb for um, another one of your novels, The War Cloud, which seems to be very fitting to the headlines of today, even though you wrote it a few years ago. <laughs> Well, that one, you know, that's a very interesting book because I actually wrote that right after I graduated from Northwestern and came out to Hollywood. It was a big spec script, got a lot of uh, notice and variety and whatnot, and uh, it was in the early 90s I wrote the script, which was different, of course, from the novel I, I wrote later. But the big problem with that as a movie was that uh, – the the idea that Washington could be attacked by nukes, people didn't, the studios didn't think that was realistic, and that there would be a female president. They also didn't think that was realistic. And so um, it was funny because uh, in those days, the definition of an action movie in terms of audience was males 25 and under. And so they just couldn't see a woman being at least 35 or older to be president was going to draw the action crowd. And so the same names kept coming up then 
Uh, I think it was Sigourney Weaver, number one. I think Mary McDonald, Gina Davis, Glenn Close. There was somebody else. But the irony is all of those actresses eventually played a president or first lady. Uh, that's what was so funny was the, you know, in time they did. And uh, what basically happened is there was a rival script and the studios did the math. It's very interesting about our time because you were talking about how relevant it is now. The the book is, yes, but the script at the time wasn't considered to be realistic enough. So what happened is they crunched the numbers and they decided, you know what? If we put in a male instead of a female, which was the whole point of my story, uh, and it's Harrison Ford, well, we can make $300 million instead of $100 million back in those days. And that that's how Air Force One got made. So uh, that, there you go. So one of the lessons learned as a novelist, honestly, was that when it came to films, certainly back then, now it's changing, a female lead in an action story probably wasn't going to cut it in terms of box office. But if it's a book, the majority of readers tend to be women. And so you have better luck with a female heroine. I always hear about Hollywood uh, tinkering with uh, with novels and stories and stuff. It's so, so fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nowadays, yeah. it's easy to just uh, – I think they did that with Salt. It was originally written for Tom yeah. Cruise. And then they oh. said, well, let's switch it. And they put in Angelina Jolie. Wow, yeah. And now you have uh, House of Cards. Uh, uh, Robin Wright is the president yep. now on that one. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, yeah, things are changing. Yes, but you know, I I still have a real there's a real place in my heart for what uh, I guess they call in in the uh, uh, in the in the genre terminology male adventure. I mean, I I think that uh, it's very difficult these days to really have a book featuring a male protagonist with a strong female heroine that really takes off, uh, where you get men who read books. And uh, to me, that's always been a holy grail. I would never like, I, I never would want to tune out half the audience. When you start writing these books and you're like in the other research and the information down, um, do you like uh, have like a detailed outline before you even start writing it? Or do you just kind of get the idea and then you start to write the story? Uh, you know, I've done, it, it's usually, it's it's both. Some books I feel my way through and end up doing quite a few revisions. Raising Atlantis was like that because I couldn't quite find anything out there that was kind of like it, and I just kind of felt my way through it. It was first novel. And then there are others where, like The War Cloud, which I just kind of knew beginning and kind of where I wanted to go with it. These days, I'm, I, I definitely think over the general concept more, uh, than before, uh, in terms of, of its appeal and more importantly, like what really, you know, s sparks my imagination and then try to expand it sort of snowflake style, uh, mostly to keep me from d doing a deep dive into the research, like I told you, because I could just <laughs> take forever. <laughs> but, but I have to tell you that the, the, the truth is, is until you really you can outline it forever, which is what they do in Hollywood here. It's, uh, you know, you go from a two-page synopsis to a 10-page to a 50-page treatment, you know, and then a script, and, and which is part of the reason why 
most of our big budget movies look and sound and feel alike. And uh, I think that when you're doing genuine research and writing, when the rubber meets the road, it can a turn of a phrase can actually lead you in a new direction in the story. And I found that the best stuff has come out of the actual writing uh, and the, the surprises that happened to me. I don't like surprises. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> redoing a lot of the work, but the best stuff I've ever done has come that way. And then you have to be willing to redream the dream and, you know, throw out your darlings. So uh, I have found that, well, I will start with the concept and do a, a, a brief outline uh, that the real stuff happens in the writing of it. You almost have to write the first draft to know what the book's going to be about. Even before you started to write novels, were you a fan of the thriller and adventure genres as a reader? I was. I remember some someone's advice about how if you had a weekend to spend and you were reading, had to read some books, what genre type of story could you easily read a bunch of books in? versus the one-off uh, book that you've heard you have to read, and it's fantastic, of course, but it may not be your thing. And I found that to be very helpful. Like there are some, you can go on Netflix, for example, and there are a zillion different stories out there, and there's some B-movies that are just terribly made. But if it's a genre I really like, and I like the concept, I look past the bad acting, the you know everything else, and I'm like, well, how was this? Uh, how how did the idea get advanced? How did they do this? And I'm that way with books and certain thrillers. Some just I naturally gravitate to. So that that was kind of helpful to me. I do. Uh, I know when I wrote Raising Atlantis, I was looking in the bookstores. I was thinking, gee, they. You know, I, there's nothing here that I really want right now. Um, what would I want to read? And I found that that was extremely helpful. You know, you kind of write the book you want to read. Yeah, I've heard that a lot about that before, too. That that's like the, if you can't find it, write it. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what are you working on now? What projects do you have now uh, on the horizon? Uh, I am working on something, uh, a, a really big project that I'm told I will be shot if I disclose, but I'm extremely excited, extremely excited about it, and it is a little different. I also, in addition to that, have a, you'll be the first to know when I can say anything. Um, so I just, I just pledged that to you. Uh, All right, great. <laughs> I, I am, I, I've also blocked out, uh, Several more uh, adventure, adventures with Conrad and Serena for several books, um, and I'll get to those after this uh, other project. So um, it's it's a movie and book project. So um, that's kind of that's uh, kind of basically what I'm doing, and I've uh, the research is done, and I am writing it now. So I'm in production. So well, where can the readers uh, and listeners uh, uh, find you? You have on your website, you have a, I see you on Facebook and Twitter, I would imagine. Yeah, Facebook and Twitter and, uh, you know, Amazon, of course. And then if they can spell my name, they can find my author website at thomasgrenius.com, G-R-E-A-N-I-A-S.com. The easier website to go to is probably raisingatlantis.com. And there they, they have access to... Um, 
it's it's a news site too, the latest news and uh archaeology and discoveries and uh all that everything related to the themes of the books uh along with uh the virgin mystery uh free e shorts that they can get awesome and I'll have links for that on the website for for the listeners but uh so go check that out to get some uh, some some cool novels and use some free ebooks uh short so I think that's that's a win win <laughs> yep yep. Okay, Thomas, I want to thank you very much for your time and for talking to us about your work and your novels. It's uh, been fascinating talking to you. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. I'd like to ask you to please review and rate this uh, podcast over on iTunes. It really helps me get the word out. If you take a few seconds of your time to uh, do that, it would be much appreciated. You can also visit my website at thrillingreads.com forward slash podcast for show notes on this episode, as well as information about the uh, podcast in general. And you can also sign up for my mailing list there. You'll be getting uh, special offers from our guests as well as information uh, behind the scenes information on the podcast and uh, please do visit my author website at alanpeterson.com i appreciate your support and so until next episode i will talk to you then